Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Here in the Northern Rockies, dark winter months are outlasted in basements, dens, and nooks, where kindred souls gather together to share intel, swap fly patterns, and relive the memories from seasons past. This gathering spot, known locally as the February Room, is the inspiration for this podcast. No matter the season, the door is always open to those with a fly fishing story to tell. Brought to you by CD Fishing USA, the North American distributor for composite development fly rods and accessories. 40 years of Kiwi ingenuity and graphite technology now available at cd-fishing.us or your local CD USA dealer. Follow us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. And remember to go fishing. Here's your host, the Carnops, and this is the February Room. When considering your next fly fishing destination, you may just want to mess with Texas. From tarpon to tailwaters, you can fish for damn near anything across the vastness of the Lone Star State. There's a line that divides East and West Texas, and that boundary is the mighty Brazos River. The Rio de los Brazos means the River of the Arms of God, and is the 11th longest river in the U.S. at 1,280 miles. It's full of fish, and as our guest today can attest, he is the owner-operator of Brazos on the Fly. Will Stewart, welcome to the show. Thank you, Justin. It's good to be here. Good to talk to you again. You too, Will. Uh, appreciate uh, you joining us this evening. Um, and uh, the Brazos, which we will learn, is a storied river, uh, which leads us right into a fishing story. So go ahead and shoot. All righty. Uh, probably one of my favorite uh, fishing stories so far, as far as being a guide, uh, was last year a little earlier than now probably late march early april uh had two couples from down in san angelo texas that came up to fish with me and i had just about a month before that picked up a hog island skiff with a jet outboard 
and uh, we're still kind of testing the waters with it. They, uh, the boat's rated for five people, and so me plus four would have fit that perfectly, but it's got a 40-30 jet outboard on it, so I wasn't sure it was going to push all five of us in the shallow water in the river. Uh, but I cleared all that up with them, and, and they agreed that if it uh, didn't pan out, we could just kind of do a leapfrog thing and drift down, drop a couple off, run back upstream, grab another couple, and, and drift down again, and just kind of do that all day. So that's what we did, and it worked out all right. But the day started. We pulled up to the ramp. Uh, my clients were there. They were just up the road at a lake house that night. So uh, we pulled up and I walked over and was kind of at a loss because I have never seen that many people at the ramp before. And it turns out there was a Cub Scout group putting in. And uh, I, I think we waited an hour, maybe a little over an hour for them to clear out. There were four trucks back down the ramp, which is a single file ramp. Uh, the guy at the bottom was done unloading trying to come up and the rest of them were still unloading and people were starting to unload coolers and canoes at the top of the ramp and it was just a madhouse there were kids running everywhere and it's it's really a, a fairly hazardous spot there's a blind curve on either side of the bridge right there and i was i was as nervous about the kids running around as i was about anything that morning but anyway they got it the ramp cleared out we kind of let them know we were trying to get down there and um we finally got in and since we had had to wait that long, I just told all four of my clients just to hop in the boat and we're going to try to blow this joint, get out, get out of here and get to some open water. So we did, and I rode them down to the first kind of deep pool where I could get the motor fired up and fired it up. And, of course, the, <laughs> the stern of the boat just kind of dug in and, and nose went up. It wouldn't get up on a plane with that many people. So uh, we had to go to that plan B of playing leapfrog all day. Um, so I dropped one couple off pretty close to where that happened and took the other two down to Flint Bend, which is the first major bend after the ramp. And it's usually a good casting spot, good fishing spot and got them started. And, uh, the other couple had started fishing in a kind of a slack water pool up, upstream where I dropped them off. So I go back up there and I pick them up and they had already started fishing. So I let them do that for a minute while I got some stuff squared away on the boat. And, uh, I was just about done and I hear this splash behind me. They had been making their way along the bank around a uh, piece of driftwood and the wife had stepped out a little further than the husband had and it does drop off there a fair bit if you step out just that one extra step. Anyway, I turn around just in time to see him haul her up out of the water by her waiter straps and she had gone in over the waiters and he drags her out and in the meantime of doing that he uh, makes the mistake of saying, I didn't tell you to step out that far. <laughs> and it's all of 60 degrees and the water it couldn't have been over 55 or 60 degrees. So it was not a warm day, not warm water. And I just knew he was going to be hurting later that day when he got home. Uh, but anyway, he hauls her out and she starts taking her waders off and dumping them out and wringing her socks out. And I make it about halfway over to him and I just kind of stopped in my tracks because he said something to her and she immediately retorted back to him, don't talk to me right now. <laughs> so I was a little taken aback and I debated just turning around and going back to the boat at that point, giving her a little more time. But I went over, asked her if there was anything I could do. And uh, she said, no, I'm fine. Let me just get everything wrung out and dumped out and we'll see where we are then. So I said, okay. So I went back to finish out 
doing whatever I was doing in the boat. And I start walking back over there about five minutes later. And same, I'm like almost in the exact same spot. And he, the husband decides to say something again. And she again immediately looks at him with a very icy look and says, I said, don't talk to me right now. And so that time I went over and said, look, if, if you're just soaked, if you're just too wet to fish comfortably, I'll take you back up to the ramp. We're only about a quarter mile down. And uh, I'll get you up there. You can drive back to the house. Y'all are just up the road. Get you some dry clothes, come back, and you'll be, we'll be good. And she just, she wouldn't do it. She wasn't having it. She just wanted to fish. So that's what we did. And uh, she toughed it out from about 8.45, 9 o'clock that morning when we finally got started till, uh, I guess, about 3.30 that afternoon. And the clouds never cleared up. It never got any warmer. The wind just kept blowing. And uh, anyway, like, I would look over there, and I just, probably annoyed her with as much as I asked her if she was doing okay but she <laughs> would just shivering over there and her husband made her a, a pot of, a cup of coffee on a jet boil stove that they brought and um, she toughed it out I gotta give it to her she she was a lot tougher than I gave her credit for but anyway end of the trip I it was super slow we hadn't caught anything and I just like by a concentration of flies was trying to get somebody something and we were fishing this little rocky stretch and then we were all standing out in the middle of the river and I just had all four of them in a row throwing top water, throwing nymphs, throwing streamers, just a good mix of everything, just kind of a shotgun blast. And she finally, <laughs> of all things on a top water, pulls in this little hand sized red breast sunfish and um uh, so she kind of redeemed the day for herself that that afternoon and at the end of the trip, we're sitting up at the ramp, and the girls had gone up to uh, put their stuff in the car, and the husbands were talking to me, and her husband, at one point, had her using his rod, and then I handed her one of mine, and they swapped off, and she was using mine. She turned around and looked at him, and she said, I don't like your rod. I want one of his. <laughs> so at the ramp, he said, would you be willing to sell me one? I said, yeah, sure. If, if y'all want it, let me know, and I'll when I get home, I'll get the tube, and you can let me know tomorrow if you want to buy it and I'll ship it to you and so sure enough he texted me the next day and, and said hey she really liked that fly rod and I want her to stay in this and uh, make sure she has a rod that she enjoys and can cast really well so we'll take it and so I shipped him the rod and the next weekend she was out on her kayak catching fish with it so um, it's one of those trips where uh, you're worried about the client because they just fell in they're wet and it's cold you're just grimacing because nobody's catching any fish uh, but all in all, everybody turned out having a, to have a good day and, and uh, helped correct some of their casting stuff for the, the girls that hadn't fished a whole lot. And they, by the end of the trip, they were casting pros and, and apparently enjoyed it enough to do it again. So it, everything turned out okay. Were you kind of thinking, man, maybe this guiding thing isn't all it's cracked up to be on the, on the drive home? That's a tough, that's a tough oh, yeah. intro. Yeah, so that, that was... Like I said, that was like the second trip I'd done on the skiff. And uh, granted, learning how to row a skiff on the Brazos is not as technical as it is on, say, a, a Rocky Mountain River where you've got a pretty steep gradient and a lot of fast water. Uh, down here, the biggest thing you're fighting against is wind. And so if you can position the boat upstream or downstream, whichever way the wind's going to push you and just drift that way, with the wind and keep your people in a good casting position, then you're good to go. But yeah, it was, I was seriously doubting myself at that point. Um, before that I just done wading trips and taking a few people out in a canoe, uh, and just kind of tested the waters on it. So 
it was it was a tough day, but it was a good day in the end, which kind of relieved a little of my stress. But still, I it's it's never an easy day in the winter and early spring on the Brazos. It's it's always a, a toss up on whether they're going to be moving or not. Well, I tell you one thing: um, you had an easier day than that scoutmaster did. Certainly, that's <laughs> as big of a pain as it was uh, trying to get down the ramp. Those are some of my favorite days to be guiding or fishing myself because when you see those groups of like 40 canoes with nothing but, you know, seven, eight through 15-year-old kids coming down, they're just zigzagging the channel and it's two kids to a canoe. And a lot of times the kids don't have a lot of gear in their canoe, so they're sitting way up out of the water and the wind's blowing them because they don't weigh anything. And they're just zigzagging. They're just bouncing into each other. It's it's It's... It's pretty funny to watch. Just chaos. And it's it's not a short trip. Uh, the from that ramp that I use down to the next public takeout is a twenty river mile trip, and I just can't help but think by about mile fifteen they finally get get it straightened out and then they're done. So. <laughs> but it yeah it's it's always fun to watch people coming down and and you can almost immediately judge the experience level that people have out there. So on your on your float trips, are you are you going um, boat ramp to boat ramp, um, or are you floating down and then using the motor to run back up, or how's that work? Typically, what I'll do is I'll put in. Uh, we put in at the Highway 16 bridge below Morris Shepherd Dam, which is the dam that makes Possum Kingdom Lake. Um, so we put in there, and like I said, the next public access point is a uh, family operated canoe rental and shuttle service which is on by the farm to market four bridge and so it's 20 river miles and i haven't tested the boat beyond about eight to ten miles down enough to be comfortable taking clients that far um, there's some really really shallow shoals once you get past that 10 mile point uh, and even really past the eight mile point is pretty difficult unless we have really good flows uh, so yeah, we'll put in right there at that highway 16 bridge. We'll drift a pretty good ways. If we need, if the current's really slow or the wind's really fighting us, uh, we'll use the motor to kind of hop to from pool to pool and find a good shield, uh, wind shielded area to fish from. Uh, but it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a tough river to fish and <laughs> I'm very thankful to have a jet outboard <laughs> as opposed to trying to get back upstream in my canoe like I was doing. So are you fishing from the boat primarily on your trips or do you pull over and wade fish or a little mix of both or what's a day look like? Uh, typically on an average year with average flows, what we're going to be doing is we'll put in, uh, like I said, at the ramp at Highway 16, we'll drift probably the first uh, mile, two miles. And if it's, if it's fishing well, then we'll fish that as long as we can and keep catching. Um, and that stretch, when we get on the boat initially, I'll have them cast from the boat because it's a good warm-up spot. You don't have as much to get hung up on uh, on your back cast or forward cast. And there's a pretty good deep stretch past that one-mile marker that has a lot of big rocks, deep holes, and we'll use some intermediate line in there and try to get down to some bigger fish. Um, like it's flowing right now, so the about the lowest I can run the jet uh, skiff down there is 100 cubic feet per second, and that's 
a good level for a mix of fishing styles. So when it's running like that, I'll pull off on some flats if there's carp tailing and try to get people to catch some carp. Um, a lot of people don't want to do that because the stigma that carp have in Texas is not a favorable sure. one. Well, and then they're also they're a they're a pain in the ass. Oh yeah, yeah. If yeah, if I have some pretty inexperienced fishermen with me, then then I don't I don't push that. But uh, there's some flats that we can do that in. Occasionally, you'll catch some some largemouth or uh, spotted bass swimming around on those flats too. Yeah, I, uh, personally, I don't I don't think the boat is the place to learn the fundamentals of fly fishing. So I think that you got to learn the fundamentals on the ground, on your feet, and then gravitate to the boat. And, you know, that's not uh, the approach of, of everybody, but, um, um, uh, you know, I'm at the point where, I, I mean, I just flat tell beginners, like, you know, go go take a fly fishing course, go take a lesson, get the fundamentals, you know, down um, before you go ahead and book a guide trip. I just, I don't want to waste your time spending um you know two-thirds of the day just trying to get the fundamentals figured out and um and you know give you the best chance of catching fish so it's you know i liken it to golf like would you just run out to pebble beach for the first time in the wind or would you would you go to the driving range and work your way up to fly fishing from a boat in the wind (laughs) yeah i I get it yeah it's 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 a fine balance here, especially because, I mean, fly fishing is not something that's real prevalent in North Texas. Uh, it's increased by, I mean, exponentially over the last 10 or so years. And it's, it's great that it has, but uh, that's one of the problems is that a lot of people just don't know where they can go to do it. And so I, that, I think that plays a big part in why I have so many beginners that come out. But I also love that because I, I also teach high school. I love to teach. Um, I love showing people new things. And so it plays into the teaching part of it. It plays into the fishing part and being outdoors. And it, it's a really good experience for me. And I try to make it as good of an experience as I can for everybody. But, uh, yeah, like you said, and, and it, when, I, when people book a trip, I send them an info sheet with what to bring, what not to bring. I recommend some places to watch some casting videos and, and recommend that they practice a little bit before they come if they can. And um, then we kind of adjust accordingly when they get there and I can see what they're capable of. So I, yeah, I totally get the boat thing. It's, it's, you, it's easy to cast from a boat once you're used to it. But like you said, it's, it's a learning curve for sure. And when you're in the boat, you do kind of have to get those casts out there a little bit further. Um, in a lot of cases, especially if <laughs> if you're fighting current up there or if I'm fighting wind down here, it, it can be a little bit of a challenge to keep clients in just the right spot if, they're, if their skills are not there. Well, yeah, and just the line management aspect of it as well. Yeah, that's that's awesome that you send them casting videos, and I, you know, I always try to do that too. If I've got somebody, you know, I end I end up getting a lot of blind dates myself because I'm an independent I'm an independent contractor, right? So I'm not an actual outfitter in Montana. There's a discrepancy between the two as far as licensing goes and and who can do what. So um, I do end up, you know, just with blind dates. But if if I have a, you know, <clears throat> a uh, a conversation um, beforehand with folks i make sure and just like you send them videos they never watch them but it, you know at least you tried <laughs> <laughs> at least you can say i told you so 
<laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. The most important thing, right? You know, I, uh, I after I, I met you at uh, at the Texas Fly Fishing and Brew Festival in Mesquite this last winter, um, and you know, we we chatted a few times, and you had some uh, some flies that I recognized and stuff, and um, I ended up buying those flies from that one guy that came over. He had those great frog Yeah, hours. yeah. I've fished him a couple of times. I think it's it's still been a little early in the year for him, but uh, I hope if they start working, I'm going to have to give them a call and pick some more up. <laughs> they look great. Yeah, so you, you get a lot of topwater opportunity, it looks like. I mean, you had a lot of those Dodo poppers and stuff in your boxes. and, and Yeah, I that's my absolute favorite if we can get some largemouth and spotted bass to take those top water flies it's it's an absolute blast out here um it it is i'm telling the brazos is something else man it's 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 really good when it's good and then it's really tough when it's tough so um it's a it's a daily battle i never know what i'm going to get into down there especially um if we have an up and down year on flows that completely changes the dynamic but uh, that's that's what makes it fun because you, you just never know what you're gonna get into yeah so you know I when I drove over the river on my way out of there um, I took an extra long look at it after after chatting with you and um, and you know pulled over and, and put eyes on it and, and I, I was definitely put that on my list I'm like I got next year when I come <clears throat> when I come down I might come down a little later or something and, and uh, try to get on it with you and um, you know what even uh, further kind of piqued my curiosity was uh, the novel that you shared with me and you were generous enough to send me a copy um, so let's talk about that book a little bit I, I understand um, it's played an important role in uh, protection and conservation along the Brazos as well yeah certainly so yeah it's uh, goodbye to a river is the title of it and it's a, a narrative by John Graves who uh, I like to think of as kind of a Texas version of Hemingway he uh, did all sorts of things throughout his life. His main claim to fame was as a writer, uh, but he was in the military for a while. He lived in Europe for a short while and traveled a lot, ended up kind of up in the Northeast for a bit as well, and then gradually kind of found his way back to Texas. And what the book is about is in 1957, there was a, a plan by the Brazos River Authority to build and I always forget the exact number of dams, but several dams below Possum Kingdom. So Possum Kingdom was built in the 30s, and then Lake Whitney is down further, down close to Waco, that area. And so the plan was to build a series of, I want to say it's like somewhere between five and eight dams between those two. And like John Graves says in his book, it would essentially make, would have made the Brazos a series of beads on a string. And it would have pretty much inundated all of the river channel from Possum Kingdom to uh, Lake Whitney, which in some regards it, at that point when hydroelectric generation was kind of the way to generate a lot of electricity it would have been great for that. It would have been great for your typical lake recreation type stuff, but it would have absolutely, uh, like I said, inundated the river channel for a really long stretch, and which would have been a, a, a huge shame because there's so much history and landscape and everything else that goes along with rivers that, that goes along that stretch. So the end product of him, it started out as this trip in 1957 as kind of his farewell to the river that he grew up around, camping and hunting and fishing and doing canoe trips on. And um, 
after that point, he published, after the trip, he published it as an article in, I uh, can't remember if it was like Outdoor Life or something, one of those outdoor magazines that was extremely popular back in that day. And after he published that, it got all this national attention. And it's not, like you can't, I can't find anything concrete online that it had any like direct effect on the Brazos River Authority, but its popularity throughout the nation. And then once he published the book, I think it gained enough notoriety and brought enough awareness to that stretch of river that they kind of backed off of that plan. And there may have been other factors that played into that, but I I can't imagine that it didn't have an effect the way he wrote the book, uh, not only about himself taking this trip, but he includes the history of like the first settlers that come into the area in Palo Pinto County and that area where I fish primarily and how they were in conflict with the uh, inhabitants that were already there, which were the Comanche Indians, which were notorious for raiding. They were, they were the best horsemen in the world at that point and just absolutely ruthless in defending their home territory. And so it, the Brazos from, I mean, the Brazos from Galveston all the way up to the Panhandle out by Lubbock was kind of the frontier and where a lot of the beginning of the conflict with Comanches and the end of it came into play um, out in Paladuro Canyon in the headwaters. So if you go out towards Lubbock, the technical headwaters of the Brazos actually start in New Mexico. And then it starts to come into these different tributaries. And you have the Double Mountain Fork, you have the Salt Fork, you have the Clear Fork, and that all three of those then come together just shortly above Possum Kingdom Lake. So the Clear Fork and the Salt Fork are the last two confluences, or is the last confluence above PK, and then it just forms the Brazos, which then goes into PK and then on down to the coast. And, um, I mean, Indians like Kiwana Parker and, uh, you know, the most famous Comanches that you hear of, that was, that was their territory in Texas. And uh, their hideouts, their buffalo hunting grounds, and it's it's... You can't not, if you know anything about those, you can't drive through the headwaters to where I live in Olney without thinking about all those things that happened out there. And it's a really amazing piece of country. A lot of people think as they drive through it to go to school at Texas Tech and Lubbock or something, they just think it's just this desolate wasteland. But it's, uh, my mind <laughs> just is going nonstop if I make that drive or if we're driving to New Mexico or Colorado, I can't help but just try to replay all of these different raids and the lifestyle of the Comanches in my head and what they must have thought when settlers started coming across that area and you know you start having cavalry units chasing them around out there and uh, initially the Comanches just really giving them heck and, and <laughs> cavalry being completely ineffective but um, it also in a natural sense um, in the book John Graves writes about how if those dams were built you'd never see another big head rise coming down the river and all the debris it brings with it because if and honestly if, if possum kingdom wasn't there then the brazos all the way down to whitney would still be a red uh consistency of chocolate milk um because of all the red clay that washes in out of west texas and uh but with possum kingdom where it is it filters out and now where i'm fishing it i mean it's almost as clear as any of the hill country rivers that you'll get on uh, so it's it's beautiful now, but I mean, even with Possum Kingdom being built in the 1930s, you've you've lost that 
ability to see how that river used to flow uh, naturally back then. But it's, like I said, it's, it's, it's a dear river to me and the book means a lot to me because I grew up out here and doing trips on it two, maybe three times a year with my parents and my sister or my dad and a couple of my buddies from high school would do it several times a year when we got older. And uh, I first, my first exposure to the book was on vacation. My dad would climb in the back seat with me and my sister and read us a book over the entire span of vacation. We never flew anywhere, we always drove. And uh, it usually had some kind of historical context. Sometimes it was a classic like Moby Dick or something like that. But uh, the summer he read Goodbye to a River to us, I, I fell in love with the book. Was fortunate enough at some point in my younger years to go to a, a guest speaker series at Midwestern State University in Wichita Falls, where John Graves spoke. Um, I want to say he spoke alongside uh, Larry McMurtry, but I can't remember that for sure. Wow! Uh, wow! Cool. Larry McMurtry is from 15 miles north of where I live in Archer City, so it's there's a lot of good riders out here. But um, one of my like I can't start reading goodbye to a river and i'm gonna read a quote out of it um the first page on the first chapter um it's the second paragraph it's one of my absolute favorite paragraphs in the book it says uh most autumns the water is low from the long dry summer and you have to get out from time to time and wade leading or dragging your boat through trickling shallows from one pool to the long channel channel twisted pool below hanging up occasionally on shuddering bars of quicksand, making six or eight miles in a day's lazy work. But if you go to the river at all, you tend not to mind. You're not in a hurry there. You learned long since not to be. And that that paragraph, I mean, that last sentence, you're, you're not in a hurry. You learned long since not to be. I mean, I, I go through that entire sentence every day when I'm going to do a trip on the river because I'm always like in this mind fog of did I forget this? Do I have this? Is this going to be a good day of fishing? Is it going to be a bad day of fishing? And you get to the river, right? as soon as you get the boat in, it's just like this sigh of relief and you're like you're there and and you're there. So it's going to be a good day. <laughs> it's nothing, there's no other way to look at it. Right. Yeah. That, yeah. And that, um, that paragraph hooked me too, right out of the gate. I was like, wow, this is a, this guy is legitimate. And, uh, yeah, I, you know, <clears throat> admittedly have not finished the book that you sent me two months ago because <laughs> I live in the loud house like you. And, uh, yeah, finding uninterrupted reading hours right now is tough with fishing season here as well. But um, but I'm about halfway through it and have thoroughly enjoyed every minute of it. And the other reason why it's so I'm going so slowly is I keep rereading everything because the guy is such a master storyteller and a, he's a... A literary genius and I, I'd never heard of him and um, you know I I've already reached out to a friend of mine who is you know the best writer I know that um, works for Bugle magazine and uh, and I was like hey have you read this book and he said no I, I hadn't heard of it and so I kind of feel like I got a gotcha too like for me to find a book that that guy hasn't read that's about uh, you know uh, nature and, and a river specifically told in the way that John Graves is telling the story um, that's going to be a win for him. Yeah, I, there's rarely a, a trip I take with anybody that I don't ask them if they've read it, and if they haven't, well, you got to read it. If you're gonna fish this river, if you're gonna come out of here again, you have to read that book. And and a lot of them, a lot of them have if they're from this area, this region. It's kind of like a regional cult classic up here. But 
if it's somebody that's kind of a recent transplant or somebody that doesn't live here and is just passing through, then a lot of times they haven't read it. And um, it's, I hit it off with a client last summer because he loves the book. He His family has a house by Graham, Texas, which is just north of where we fish. And um, he actually collects copies of it. And he's got all these different editions of it. And I want to say he, he ended up with one book from kind of a secondhand bookstore. And I can't remember the story exactly. Now, he's fishing with me again in June, so I'll have to ask him. But um, it, I want to say it had like a handwritten note from John Graves to somebody in it. And the story goes something like this. He had this handwritten note, and he had it sitting on top of the book on an end table in his living room, and they had a babysitter or something, and the babysitter needed to write down a phone number and wrote it down on that piece of paper, and then it like disappeared or something. I can't remember. Anyway, it was just this horrific story about this really cool piece of paper that he found in the book. And uh, I felt so bad for him after he told me that story. It would have just broken my heart if that happened to me, but... Um, but yeah, it's, it's hard to find some of the original editions of it. And so I, I keep my eyes out when I go to bookstores, but, uh, my wife keeps looking too. And one of these days I'm hoping she's going to surprise me with like an original edition or something, but. So, well, it sounds like you had a pretty cool dad too. Um, was he your, uh, your inspiration for, for fishing and hunting and a love of the outdoors? So my grandpa was kind of in there too as far as the fishing goes and being outdoors he my grandpa liked to catfish and crappie fish um which i enjoyed too as a kid i still enjoy it occasionally but i I much prefer fly fishing but um my grandpa's favorite story to tell about me fishing with him is we had this stock tank on a little 40 acre place north of town that they had catfish and bass and stuff stocked in and there were some pretty good sized catfish in there and i had my my little Snoopy pole out there with some shrimp on it or something and hooked a big catfish and it was really fighting hard and he let me fight it for a minute and here in a minute so I looked up at him and said, help me, Papa, help me. <laughs> he, he said, no, that's your fish. You got to bring it in. <laughs> so I ended up having to bring it in on my own. But uh, So he played a big part in it and, and my dad has done uh, just about everything in the outdoors that you would want to do. He was big into backpacking. He did a couple of Knowles courses. Um, he did whitewater rafting. He's done whitewater kayaking and, and touring kayaking. Um, he's an avid horseman, has mules. He does. He's packed in and elk hunted solo and with a few buddies. And uh, whitetail hunted mule deer, pronghorn, you name it. He's it, it, He's done it. And he about the time that I was yelling at my papa to help me, uh, was seemed like about the time my dad started trying to fly fish and I was always really curious about it but I never really pushed it that much as a little kid really little kid but I would notice while we're fishing with shrimp he would sneak around to the other side of the tank and be fly fishing he'd be pulling out little bluegill and sunfish left and right and then finally I guess I was seven or eight and we took a trip to Yellowstone for vacation and he taught my sister and I while we were there we didn't catch a fish the whole trip I don't think but uh, we got home and he bought us each a little rod and reel outfit and that was pretty much how we solidified fly fishing is going out to stock tanks and just pulling one bluegill out after another just hand over fist and didn't do much for learning how to distance cast because you could literally just use it like a cane pole out there and drop a nymph and pull it up and they'd bite it but 
it it made an impression on me and for a long time i didn't fly fish here a whole lot unless it was at a stock tank i just i don't know why i just kind of dismissed the brazos even uh, and if we did a trip i would take my spinning rod but uh, i guess about 10 years ago got a little more serious about fly fishing the brazos out here and then five years ago started teaching high school and got kind of bored those first couple of summers that i had nothing to do and uh decided you know what maybe i should take people fly fishing down there seems like something to be fun and so the first couple of years i guess 2019 uh, was the first year i really started taking people i just took some friends and acquaintances took my principal out and uh, he had a hard day fishing and managed to pull in a six inch long spotted bass and that was it uh, so i didn't get a raise after that trip but um, <laughs> he came back last summer and with his son and we had a lot of high water last year so there were striper running up and down the river and he ended up i'm pretty sure he still has the boat record for striper he pulled in about a 21 and a quarter inch striper that evening and was was super stoked about that so that was that was a lot of fun and uh but yeah 2020 i really kind of planned on being a a bigger year as far as advertising and doing trips uh, in hindsight, it was probably a good thing because I still was only doing it out of a canoe and, and loading that on top of my truck was a huge pain after trips. But uh, COVID showed up and I decided not to spend the money on advertising or a boat or anything that year just to be on the safe side. And, and then last year found the Hog Island Skiff that I bought. It was for sale used and got a decent deal on it. And it, I haven't looked back since. Last year I did. Uh, I think probably somewhere around 30 trips uh, over the wow. course of summer and spring and fall, which during the school year I'll do two or three trips a month. Uh, so it, it works nicely with teaching right now. I don't have to fully rely on booking trips. Uh, but we also do some, some whitetail guided trips in the fall on some of our property and some lease property that we have. So keeps me outdoors, keeps me busy, and uh, makes it worthwhile to be outdoors. So I've really enjoyed it. Well, tell me you have a fly called the Possum Kingdom. <laughs> Not yet. What? I gotta, I gotta find a, a pattern. I gotta come up with something. I don't have time to tie though. Is is the thing. All right. Well, I tell you what. I'm gonna start working on some stuff, and I'm gonna start sending you some samples. Okay. And uh, and then you keep tweaking it, and I'll make the changes. Um, but we gotta we gotta nail down the possum kingdom, man. That's too good of a fly name. It is, it is. It's uh, and there's a whole story behind the town that's under under Possum Kingdom Lake and, and that area, how that name came about. But I can't remember it all right now. We'll have to get into that on another podcast or something. <laughs> but uh, it is it's a funny name and when people I tell people what it's like they're like, Where do you fish? I'm like, Well, do you know where Possum Kingdom is? I'm like, what? <laughs> Well, okay. Uh, what's another landmark I can give you? <laughs> There's a band. I don't know if you've heard of the Toadies. They have a song called Possum Kingdom, uh, and that's usually the, oh, the one thing that people do. Okay. You know? So it's uh, one of those names that you know from back in the day where people named stuff those kind of eccentric things, and, and we don't get that a whole lot anymore. We fished some. We fished some off the beaten path um power plant pond somewhere by conroe one time too that was really cool i mean yeah it was really it was it was like real cold weather but um the uh i'll never forget the guide we were with uh when we pulled the first largemouth in he said 
he said, uh, and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna embarrass anyone with my Texas accent, but uh, he said that's just like holding the warm kitten, and uh, and and released it, and it was so awesome. It was such a great soundbite. I was, I was running the audio equipment, and I about fell out of the boat laughing. Uh, it was awesome. <laughs> well, well, good. Well, man, uh, we got we got time for one more story. If you got one uh, on the back burner for us, yeah. Um... I'm going to go away from the Brazos a little bit. Uh, like I said, last year was my first real saltwater experience fly fishing. And uh, so back, I guess, first part of last year, uh, there's some guys that had been coming out for a couple of years and doing falconry hunts on some of our property. And they're from Georgia, and they would just make this drive across the country. They'd go out to New Mexico on some BLM land and do it out there. Uh, but a buddy of mine that breeds Labrador retrievers here got in touch with them and asked if we'd let them come out and try to get a couple ducks or rabbits or something. And so they did. Well, uh, one of them owns a fly shop out, I think it's on St. Simons in Georgia, uh, called On the Fly Outfitters, coincidentally enough. But uh, I entered a raffle that they had for this beautiful 11-weight tarpon rod with a real line, box of flies, all this stuff, and won it. Nice. And so at that, nice. point, at that point, I was like, okay, now where do I go to catch a tarpon? So I started looking into it, and I was like, well, the logical place would be Florida, I guess. So I asked my wife, I said, well, do you want to go to Florida? She's like, eh, I don't really want to go to Florida again. And uh, so I started looking around some more and found this really nice place in Belize called Thatch Key. <laughs> I've been to Thatch Key, oh, man. Oh, gosh. I pitched it to her, and she was like, uh, crazy. okay. <laughs> That's crazy. That place is incredible. Uh, sorry to interrupt you, but you... Yeah, that's that place is incredible. Go ahead. Oh, man, it's it's the best. And so I got it. I, I booked it through Orvis uh, Travel because I had no idea what I was doing. I hadn't really planned that many out-of-country trips before. And so we get down there, and... So I, I, I got to tell on my wife a little bit here. I'm probably going to get in trouble. But um, I booked it as four-day, five-night, and we were going to fish for four. Well, originally I said three days because I knew she wouldn't want to fish every day, and I, she'd want, we'd want to spend some time on the island together. And so I booked it as three, four nights, and we'd fish for – or five nights. We'd fish for three days, and we'd have one day just to hang out, do whatever on the island. And <laughs> that was in January or February. We get a month away from the trip, and Hannah, <laughs> Hannah came back, and she said, I think three days might be a little too much fishing for me. And I was like, oh, man, come on, Hannah. Well, it'll be great. We'll, we'll have fun. <laughs> but I gave in. I said, okay, we'll spend two days on the island. We'll go do some snorkeling, and we'll, I'll fish for two days. And uh, you can fish, too, if you they want. Think about whatever. tarpon the whole time. <laughs> I, yeah, and so my – like I said, I've won the tarpon rod. My goal was to catch a tarpon, and so – we get down there it's just beautiful you pull like you get on the boat to leave the mainland they hand you a beer you get to the island they walk out this watermelon rum drink and it's just non-stop service the whole time you're there and uh so we wake up the next morning we're fishing the first two days and we meet up with our guide his name's blake uh leslie he's super 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 guide and seven 30 we leave the island we've been on the water for 30 minutes and we spot some on this nice flat and the three weeks leading up to the trip i i didn't i don't think i booked any trips for myself to guide here um 
during that time span. So I was going to the river or going out to the ranch or out in my back pasture behind my house and casting, practicing, and trying to teach myself break the habit of trout setting. And I got good at it. I was catching bass. I wasn't trout setting. I get down there. We're on this flat. It's 8 o'clock in the morning. And we've got five permit coming straight at us. And we get out there, and I'm kind of being timid about it. And Blake's finally like, dude, I want you to spook them or hook them. Come on. And so I get it out there. I land it right in the middle of me. He's like, that's perfect. That's perfect. And I'll start pulling it, pulling it. And, you know, stripping a crab flying is completely different from anything I do up here because I'm usually using bait fish patterns or something like that where you're kind of jerking it several times and letting it sit. So I'm doing these long pulls on this rod, getting that crab fly out in front of him, and then they start chasing it. And he's getting excited. He's getting excited. He said, if you feel a bump, if you feel a bump, set the hook. And I'm like, okay, okay, okay. And it's running through my mind. Don't trout set. Don't trout set. And I feel a bump. And the first thing I do is come up about 90 degrees with that rod. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and it was a permit. Oh, like just put his hands in his head, or his head in his hand. Oh, no. He made me feel really good. He said, dude, if you had not trout set, you would have had a permit on your first shot. First cast. Oh. Uh, but anyway, I blew that one. Blake got us, he got me on five more shots of permit. And, and my wife at that point realized that the getting a permit in the boat was going to be a pretty big deal. So she's like, I want you to focus on that. I'm going to watch and read my book and drink beer and enjoy this. Uh, but I want you to get a, get a fish. Perfect fishing partner. <laughs> she said, I want you to get a fish before I do. And if you don't get a fish in two days, I'm going to feel really bad uh, for canceling that third day. But uh, he got me five more shots that day. And we were about nine miles north of Thatch Key at that point. And we were going to start kind of fishing our way back. And I felt so bad for him. He, we were his 13th and 14th days on a two-week stretch before he got to go home. And we get far enough away from the flat that we were just on that we can't see the island. And we're far enough away from the next island that we can see like two trees and his motor gave out. And oh, yeah. we didn't have cell service. And we monkeyed around with the, with the motor. And I was handing him stuff out of his storage bench. And finally, we figured out that we had reverse. And so we reversed for like an hour and a half, just putting along and water coming over the stern. Luckily, he had an automatic build, so we didn't have to worry about that too much. But uh, my wife, uh, she held it together. I thought she might freak out a little bit, but she held it together. And after a certain point, she was like, well, at least we got plenty of beer in the cooler. <laughs> so we, uh, we flagged down a local fisherman and his wife, and, and he agreed uh initially at a pretty high price to tow us back to thatch until blake talked him down a little bit and uh then we finally got cell service and thatch sent a boat uh like i said i felt bad for blake because he had to go in for repairs at that point so we had a different guy the second day his name was uh martin and he was just as good as blake and he got me i think i had two shots that day and ended up landing a permit on the second day oh my god man unreal and i it, i ended up getting to meet uh now his name's gonna slip my mind uh, lincoln westby i got to meet lincoln oh uh, cool on yeah he was guiding yeah, a couple nice of, man he was guiding a couple of older gentlemen that morning uh and they were they were just beating themselves up they go down there every year apparently but they'd been there five days and hadn't landed one yet and we got back to the island and said well how'd you do and i said well tell me how you did first because you're you're having rougher luck so far and he said Okay, I don't need to hear any more about 
<laughs> no, I've, man, I've I've been that guy three times in Belize. It's uh, cast for five days and never got one. And uh, yeah, those dang things, man. That is an amazing story, boy. You did it right the first time, buddy. I tell you, that was my Belize dream. Thatch Key is the coolest place ever. Uh, you went out with one of the Leslies. They're legendary. You met Lincoln Westby, total legend. And you got a permit on your first trip, so you should never go back. <laughs> go somewhere else. And you almost got a you almost got a back end to Thatch Key from two miles out in the ocean or something. That would have been epic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that. It, but yeah, the tarpon took a complete backseat once we started fishing for permit. Uh, we we did end up after I caught that permit. We tried for bonefish for a little bit, and. Uh, I let my wife fish for them most of that time, and uh, she was casting it, and she she had her double haul cast down, bless her heart, she had to have shoulder surgery after that trip, which was planned before oh, the trip, but she was, she was getting the double haul out there, she was landing it right in the middle of the school, and uh, Martin said, well, if you feel them bumping it, set the hook, and she's like, well, I, I don't know if they're bumping it or not, it feels like maybe they are, but I'm not sure if they're just hitting the line, or if they're biting it, or what, and he said, well... We'll bring it in. Let's check your find. We had a, I think it was an Avalon shrimp on, you know, with the two rabbit strips and the mono with the beads on it. And uh, <laughs> she brought it in and they had completely eaten the two rabbit strips off and broken the mono and the beads were gone. They'd just been chewing on it. <laughs> Martin, Martin just couldn't believe it. He's like, you couldn't tell they were biting it. She's like, no, I couldn't. <laughs> I was giving her a hard time about that for a while, but uh, we tried for that. And then we went and anchored out off the reef in a cut where we could fish the current and I had one bump on a, a sinking line with a tarpon but didn't hook it and we did end up getting to see some blow some bait fish up out of the water about 50 yards away uh, but I had an entire spool of line out trolling for them and so I couldn't get that in quick enough to cast anywhere near them so it was cool to see them but I'll have to go back for the tarpon. Well, awesome. Well, well, I've taken up enough of your time. Um, so the best way for folks to reach you and learn more about your outfitting service is uh, BrazosOnTheFly.com. Is that right? Yes, sir. That is the website. Um, I've got uh, fishing trip info on there. I've got some hunting trip information on there. I've got You can book it online or you can book it through me by calling me. Uh, my phone number and everything's on there if you have questions. Uh, you can text that number, you can call it, you can send me an email, you can fill out the contact me form thing on the website. Um, what else? You can book it through the website too. There is a booking calendar on there. Um, if we do it through me, I avoid a little bit of a, a fee through my website. So um, there's that to, to contend with. But yeah, the website is definitely the best place. I try to keep pricing and everything updated as, as regularly as I can. And, uh, if you're looking for a specific date, uh, you can look at it on there. I should have most of my non-available days marked off. So uh, anyway, that, that is definitely the best place. But I'm on Instagram. It's at Brazos on the fly. Uh, I've got a Facebook page as well. So any of the above. Go to thefebruaryroom.com where you can access a complete library of our podcast and read more about our guests, their fishing stories, and favorite fly patterns. We're always looking for exceptional fly fishing yarns, and if you have one to spin, shoot us an email at info at thefebruaryroom.com. The February Room is always free, but if you feel like throwing a nickel in the pond, 
we appreciate any additional listener support. For companies and individuals interested in sponsorship opportunities, please contact us for our media kit. Thanks for stopping by the February Room, and we'll see you down here next week.